Welcome to WVU's Climate Conversations podcast. These episodes are student projects from the Fall 2019 Honors Book Club under the same title. My name is Katherine Williamson. I'm a teaching professor of physics and astronomy, and this book club was inspired by a TED Talk by climate scientist Katherine Hayhoe. She says that the most important thing you can do to fight climate change is to talk about it. Therefore, the aim of each Climate Conversation episode is to do just that, to talk about an aspect of climate change and to keep the conversation going. Hello, this is Jack Powers. I'm here with Dr. Alan Bristow from the West Virginia University Department of Physics and Astronomy. Dr. Bristow, if you'd like to introduce yourself and talk about the kind of research that you like to, that you conduct. I'm Alan Bristow and I am a professor, as you said, at uh, the Physics and Astronomy Department here at WVU. My professional training has been in uh, um, physics on the light-matter interactions side, looking at photonics and electronics using light. and because of my training in that area, that has allowed me to be involved in the general push and understanding of how devices like solar cells work and how we make our modern smartphones. Now, as a physicist, I don't work on those things directly. I work on the foundational principles behind those things, but with my tools, which are very short pulses of laser light, I can probe the inner workings of the materials that people then use to make devices like the like solar cells and even photocatalysts, which are becoming more and more important for the idea of changing or using sunlight to change nasty fuels into hopefully cleaner fuels. So Dr. Bristow, it seems that nuclear energy gets a bad rap when it comes to how it works with uh, events like Chernobyl and the 2011 disaster in Fukushima. So I was wondering if you could explain if it is actually as bad as it seems or as the media portrays it to be, or if it's just being blown out of proportion. That's a fantastic question. And I do want to remind the listeners that I am not an expert in this. Um, However, as a concerned citizen and also someone who understands some of the science, I, and I do often have to reach beyond my, my own means in this, it is very clear to me that nuclear technology is by far and away the, mo- the safest way to generate electricity using current methods to meet majority of the worldwide demands. Having said that, I mean, I'm a, I'm a light matter interactions guy, and I have a, a strong hope that um, uh, we can capture the vast quantity of uh, solar power. There's literally 164 uh, watts per centimeter um, of sunlight falling on the earth every every day roughly 84 terawatts which is a huge amount of energy and just to put that in perspective the current world consumption is 12 terawatts so i mean i while i want to push for using more solar energy because the devices are getting better um, currently we will not be able to make it without using something like nuclear and the three main incidences that, that tend to get talked about in the press are um, as you say chernobyl um, fukushima uh, three mile island the, the deaths caused by, um, by those um, instances were actually very low. The, the problem with nuclear energy is a perception problem, and it rises from one of the, the history of the development of the atomic bomb and the subsequent generation of power plants that are uranium-based. Uh, uranium and there are other technologies. Um, there's two main fuels out there that um, people have been looking at over the years, uranium and thorium. Um, thorium um, reactors, um, there's, I think, a couple working in the world right now. There was a program back at, um, at, um, in the 1970s in Oak Ridge, uh, an Oak Ridge National Lab, which um, didn't 
get as much funding as it should have done from the Department of Energy because um, the U.S. at that time was mining lots of uh, uranium for for the atomic weapons program. Um, so the, the the real problem is perception. It is actually it's eight times more likely that you'll die from coal than you will from um, from nuclear energy. And that's sort of a difficult thing to say in this state, which is uh, uh, which has a long, proud history of coal. But coal, just burning coal, has a fundamental problem that there's actually nuclear radiation coming out of coal plants. There's much more from a coal plant than there is from a nuclear plant. So... I mean, the, the deaths that did, did happen around the, the few disasters in, in history around uh, nuclear power plants were all very contained to people who had to go into the reactors to do control damage, damage, damage control. But the problem, and so if, you, if, you were to, if, you, if, a, if a nuclear reactor were to be built a few miles from your house, you would have plenty of time to get away and not be affected by anything, even if there was a meltdown. Um, now, thorium reactors, which is like the thing that I'm, so, I sort of think people should look into, the design of that technology is that they will never be able to, um, never be able to melt down because it, it's it's a breeding reaction um, that is required, and need to have constant like energy input to to do a transformation of the thorium um, to get it into the reactor, and if that gets switched off, you just flick a switch and the whole thing powers down and it's it's actually pretty safe uranium plants they stay online and when they melt down it's because 14 or 20 things go wrong um, all of those disasters that that uh, have been uh, portrayed in the media um, very negatively um, were very extreme cases and that's why we don't have nuclear radiation uh, instances um, on a more regular basis. There are, lots of, there are lots of nuclear power plants in the world. Some countries have chosen to switch them off, but many have not. Yeah, I, 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 think, I, think, if, 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 I think nuclear, nuclear is, a, is a safe option that people should consider. Speaking to the idea of things getting, it being a perception issue, solar energy seems to also have a bad perception as just not being viable and taking up a lot of area. So what exactly causes that perception to happen? Could you explain what it is specifically that causes solar energy to not output as much as it's supposed to? Sure, yeah. Um, so it's, 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 it is a... Well, the, the perception issue here is the truth. Um, I mean, right now, the current efficiency of majority of solar cells, at least the, the, the affordable ones for terrestrial use, means that, yes, for, to, power the, to power the U.S., let's just stick with the U.S., but to power the U.S., you will need to have a field of solar panels that basically covers half of Nevada. That's a large area. That is hard to imagine. Having said that, you can go to countries like Germany, for example, where even in with that further northern latitude where they get a lot less sun for half the year, um, then um, they still are strongly investing in putting solar cells on every single roof. Some states in the U.S. do that. Majority do not. Um, so there are the, the actual area is not the, is, is not the issue. But when, when you break it down, when, when a scientist like me says, oh, yeah, all you need is like half of Nevada, then everyone goes, oh, that's a huge area. Yeah, you can't do that. It's like, yeah, you can. We have, we have plenty of rooftops. In, in this country. So I think the perception one, while it is there, it is, it is, it is unfortunate um, uh, and it could be overcome with just getting the message right. The, the, the reason why it takes so much area though is because majority of the affordable um, single solar cell type um, uh, proposals um, are, are based on silicon technology, which, um, which are roughly 30% efficient. 
roughly. Um, let, let's say let's say twenty five percent, just to just to um, to incorporate some of the the cheaper models out there that people use, and so. We can get around that by going more expensive. We can go to uh, what are called multi-junction solar cells where you're not just using a single material. You use a very expensive fabrication process where you could put down multiple layers of different materials that absorb different colors of light. And that gives you a much broader spectral uptake. Um, and that's a basic more absorption of, all, of, the, of, that, of the radiant energy from the sun. Um, and that's one way to go. And we do that right now. We do that for satellites where the cost of the expensive solar cell panels is not the main cost of putting a satellite into production. It's the cost of launching it into space. That's like prohibitively expensive. No, most of us can't launch things in space, even though we might want to. Um, and um, so, yeah, so we could go that route if we just wanted to spend money. Great. Um, there's a lot of technology um, that is out there that is at the few percent efficiency at the moment. Um, so a couple of years, a decade or more behind um, uh, um, silicon, um, but it, it it has its problems in terms of um, production currently. Um, it also has problems in terms of some of the materials that are used. Um, there, I actually just read an article this morning that I I'm blanking I'm blanking which company it was, but some company that I was uh, uh, reading about this morning had just. Um, started making TVs where the quantum dots inside no longer had cadmium. In. Now, the quantum dots I'm talking about are nan nanoscale particles um, that are really good at absorbing or emitting light. And so a TV, a, an LED, um, a laser is sort of like really crude terms. It's the inverse of a solar cell or a photodetect photodetector. There, there's a lot of similarities with all these things. And so um, if, you, if you use things like quantum dots where they have a really strong absorption of light at a single frequency, single color, um, uh, then um, that can be used either as a, uh, a, a color channel of the TV or it can be used as a, a specific narrow band uh, absorber uh, for uh, sunlight. Um, so uh, um, moving away from cadmium and lead and things like that is, is, is really hopeful for, for the, the TV devices. The thing there, though, is you can pump them a bit harder with a bit more voltage um, to get the brightness you need for a small environment. But in terms of like mass production for, um, uh, for solar cells, we're still, we're still several years away from, from that. So uh, um, uh, that, yeah, it's, there's some, there, there, there is a lot of foundational research going in into the materials, uh, the, um, so the composition of um, some of these nanostructures, the geometry of nanostructures, the way in which we can fabricate them, and also um, ways in which we can understand sort of like the internal workings of those devices once we build them. And that's sort of kind of where my research sort of actually comes into play. I have limited experience in this. I had done computational research and it was using machine learning tools to map out how an electron will flow through a certain material given if it's like put or like have imperfections put into it. And could you explain exactly like what about the geometry in silicon makes it so that it's difficult to control the flow of the energy output? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So in the case of silicon solar cells, um, for example, and let's be very specific. Let's talk about a, um, uh, a layer of silicon that is roughly one micron thick, like the thickness of a human hair approximately. That has the ability to absorb across the optical spectrum. So from a little bit Beyond the, the 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 visible the red end of the visible spectrum um, uh, uh, to into the blue, and in that range, 
with a thickness of about a, about a, a hair, a hair thickness, then um, that can generate, if you have a device that's on the order of a, a few centimeters squared, um, that can generate about 1.5 volts and it's about one volt, let's say, about one volt is a bit more accurate. Um, it's really good. I mean, uh, that's 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 the best silicon's going to do. And so to get that useful in a, in a production scale, you're going to need to have many of those. But inside that individual device, what happens is that all of the 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 sunlight. So we need to put, we need to do a calibration here. Let's let we need we need to um, turn the the radiation spectrum from sunlight into sort of scales which we can understand. Um, the best way I like to think about it is that let's talk about the eye first, right? So so the, the eye has a bunch of photoreceivers in it, um, uh, photoreceptors. The low end, the red end, gets switched on by um, uh, the electric field of, of, of light. Which, and because it's electric field, you can then basically now convert it into voltage. So you can think about a 1.5 volt AA or AAA battery. That 1.5 volts will switch on red light for you. And then for the blue end, that's going to be about 3 volts. Okay, so two of those batteries. Okay, so for a silicon cell to like generate 1 volt, that's actually really good um, because majority of the light coming in um, that is going to be absorbing is between about 1.1 volts and about 3 volts. Okay, so there you are. And so this is kind of the fundamental problem. You have photons, you have, you have sunlight that's coming in at 3 volts, but it's con being converted into energy that comes out of 1.1 volts. That's a problem. Okay, so um, uh, that, that missing 2.5 volts, that missing two, roughly 2 volts. Um, that goes into thermal losses, or like in the example you were talking about, where you have um, uh, probably have like um, boundaries in the material, grain boundaries, or like edge effects. Um, you get like loss of the um, uh, um, the the the, the e electric energy into heat energy. And that's that's just a waste. Um, one of the technologies that I am uh, sort of looking into with colleagues at the University of Oklahoma. Um, is um, it, it's a it's a test case in a in a uh, in a, in a f system that uh, actually um, absorbs energy at a slightly um, uh, smaller uh, smaller engine uh, smaller smaller um, uh, uh, voltage about one point about point eight volts. Um, but in that range, what we're trying to do now is we're trying to use our tools that uh, of laser light at at one and a half volts and two volts um, to see if we can get voltage out of the device at about one and a half to two volts. Um, so trying to minimize that conversion of electrical energy to heat energy because that's that's the big that's the by far the biggest problem. There is a there is an internal um, internal limit. So for any any uh, uh, slight experts on the on the uh, on the, the list, uh, among, among the listeners, um, the uh, the uh, um, shock equalizer limit is something that um, uh, um, is sort of a fundamental like limit of how these devices work because it's all about it's it really all comes down to thermodynamics. Um, so you have to take one form of energy, turn it into another form of energy, and you have to do that in the least lossy way possible. Um, now there are a few proposals out there in the literature for going beyond the shock equalizer limit, which um, uh, um, uh, this is new stuff in the last like a year or so that I'm just trying to get my own head around. Um, uh, but uh, I think there's an exciting space to uh, to find ways Ways of, of getting more of that juice out of the uh, out of, out of individual devices. In one of the books that we read, Renewable by Helen Flanagan, she is a very climate conscious person and she seems to have, do almost everything. From my reading of the book, almost her entire personality by the end of it was basically her in her fight against climate change. 
do you as a scientist constantly find yourself or a passionate person about climate change do you constantly find yourself that is like in the back of your head like that kind of dictates a lot of the stuff that you do yeah it's a it's a fantastic question and i think that one that we should all ask ourselves regardless of whether a scientist or not so as a scientist i'm i guess i'm um i struggle every day to try and be more aware i have not been very aware for most of my life and partly it's because i just haven't known what to do um i think that is a i i would imagine that's a common problem there is a, a another problem which is i like my luxuries um and um, I do feel guilty about the the air travel that I do, which is probably one of the most destructive things I can I do personally. But as you can probably tell from my accent, I I was not born here. My family is not local, and um, uh, I do like to see them in person from time to time to have our, our like annual family family arguments, etc. <laughs> um, so uh, um, I mean, Skype is wonderful, but it's not the same. Um, I sadly don't imagine myself giving up my air travel um there there could be better ways in which i can like possibly offset what i'm doing i don't know if i can offset everything i'm doing um i would love to be like um uh, greta thunberg and um uh, uh, be able to take my boat around like the whole world i don't own a boat but i I would love to have one (laughs) and like i'd love to like go that way i've long long wanted a zeppelin and um uh, just cruise around the world like maybe not even have like a single academic home just like cruise from conference to conference from from uh, um uh, teaching from classroom to classroom around the world like that very slowly using as little fuel as possible that would be awesome um uh, um but uh in my day-to-day life i mean i try and do things like take a, a bag with me to places um uh, um i am really bad about taking the plastic the, the plastic um uh, or they're disposable but uh, although they're, they're they're recyclable um but the plastic lids that you get at the, the, the local coffee shop um i need to get a mug and just take that with me every time but i'm always lazy and it's always going the wrong direction so i mean while i i recognize my, my own um, hypocrisy, I mean, and it really is hypocrisy. I mean, I, I know better. I do know better now. I, I, I'm aware that I am consciously making decisions every day. But I'm also an optimist. I believe that um, a lot of the things that we can do in terms of technology can get us out of a lot of problems. I know that's not enough, though, but I am an optimist that we can we can somehow muddle through, um, but it, it's a struggle. It really is a struggle. And, um, and I mean, if someone like me, who, is, who has been spending time over the last few years educating myself on where I'm going wrong, can't give up some of the things, I also at the same time am a bit pessimistic that there's a lot of people out there that who don't bother to educate themselves and it's but certainly in in the u.s when you have um uh, uh, one of the major parties actively fighting against um um this um this idea that the climate the climate crisis is real um then um there's a lot of people out there who are just not gonna even bother um uh, so yeah it's a it's a really tough one um but uh, yeah i'm gonna I, i'd vow to do better um and maybe maybe you can invite me back in a year's time and see if I'm doing better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Could you speak more about those emerging technologies that you're excited about? Yeah. Okay. So, um, 
Um, one of the so the, again, so there's more the foundational at the moment, but um, uh, one of the things that that people have been looking at, and there's a few um, few groups at Berkeley and um, uh, um, uh, University of Chicago, um, Imperial College London. Um, and a little bit us here at West Virginia, um, they've been looking at the idea of in photosynthesis, so in, in biology. Um, so um, what happens is you get, um, so you have these big floppy molecules that um, do uh, um, light to basically a chemistry conversion. Okay, so, it, so it, 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 it's, the, it's photosynthesis, it takes in sunlight in an absorption center in a material, and then the, that, that electrical energy the excited, excited state in the absorption center has to then be transferred to somewhere where it's going to do the ATP conversion. And photosynthetic molecules are big, complicated molecules. And there is beginning to be consensus around the idea that the the energy transfer from the absorber to the, the, the reaction site is not governed by classical mechanics. The classical mechanics, it would be the electron the Electron would be excited, it would get some energy, and then it would have to do a random walk to find the place where it's supposed to catalyze the sugar conversion reaction. And uh, I'm not a biologist, so I might have, might have said that last bit wrong. The idea of using uh, or needing quantum mechanics is that the random walk approach is just not efficient to explain photosynthesis. Like, it just does not explain like the amount of greenery we have around the world. It just does not. And so the only way would be a quantum, a quantum walk where actually the excited electron can sort of feel, I use feel in, in quotation marks, because it sort of can feel the, uh, the, the entire molecule and it just knows that there's an energy minimum over where it's supposed to be doing its thing or some force, some attraction to that point through some quantum pathways that like it that might mean that that pathway has to be the one it has to take. But it can sort of do a superposition of all pathways simultaneously. That's like a fancy quantum word for like adding up all the pathways. But it knows it does them all at once and it, it just knows where it needs to go. And that sounds really spooky, but that's kind of sort of fundamentally how quantum mechanics works. So if we can if we are beginning to recognize that in in photosynthesis, maybe like we can take the biology into the physics lab and we can now start to develop nanoparticles that will do the same sort of thing. And I had a collaboration here with Statler College where we were getting samples for them where, from them where they had been looking at photocatalysis. So photosynthesis, photocatalysis, fundamentally the same thing. You're using electrons, you're using charge carriers um, inside materials, photoexcited charge carriers inside materials to catalyze reaction. From the samples that we were getting from Statler College, they they had um, uh, so a, a metal core which was like nice, nicely strongly absorbing, and then a semiconductor shell. And on the edge of the semiconductor, that's where they were having their charge build up so that they can catalyze whatever it was they were catalyzing. In the middle, um, and so in, in the boundary between the metal and the semiconductor, you get loss. You get like charge being trapped there, not being able to make it to the outer surface. Um, uh, so it's actually not that dissimilar from a quantum, uh, from a from a random walk where an electron would go down a wrong path and get stuck there and not be able to do photocatalysis uh, or photo, photo, photosynthesis. Um, so in the in the photocatalytic photo model that we had with the with the metal and the semiconductor if we put an insulating layer in between those two then what we found is we were actually able to um, prevent that that charge build up at the at the interface and there was more charge at the edge but you but but 
you'd say, well, how does the electron get from the from the, the metal into the semiconductor? Well, it's not going to be through a random walk, um, classical electron particle moving. It's going to be a sort of a wavy quantum dipole-dipole interaction type thing. So a dipole is just a, a separation of charges. So you have a positive and negative with a slight separation between them. And because these are driven by the light field, the light field is an oscillating electric field, and it just drives these like plus and minus charges like to oscillate. So that's a dipole. That's what a dipole is. And that dipole that oscillator will couple to the couple to the outer edge of the semiconductor and it will induce charge on the outside so i mean we can describe it purely in terms of classical electrodynamics but actually when you take into into account quantum coherence which is uh, another big complicated word that I'm, i will have to explain <laughs> for sure then the quantum the quantum nature of it sort of comes to life and so and what we saw is that like for just the right geometry of uh, the right thickness of the inter that intermediate layer between the metal and the semiconductor we could get huge enhancement of the photocatalysis and we can and we map that out in, with our laser pulses where we could show the the actual internal electron di electron dynamics the time scales of these processes so okay so I, I, I probably should briefly talk about quantum coherence which is like a, fan a fantastic thing and so it sort of underpins all of these things because so in the idealized pictures I've been talking about, I've been talking about like a single oscillator. I mean, these thought experiments, like single single oscillator coupling to another oscillator. But like in reality, like if we want to use all of, all the sunlight, we need to use all of the sunlight. So every single photon, every single oscillating electric field is going to have to like promote and um, sort of, uh, excite electrons on oscillating dipoles. And they all need to oscillate in phase with one another. And when they oscillate in phase, they can create much more signal and actually there's additional terms between so if you have one oscillator in one hand and another oscillator in another hand together just by themselves you've got twice the number of oscillators if you just had compared with one hand okay but there's also interactions between those two oscillators that mag further magnify the effect okay so you get more than twice the amount of of oscillatorness by digging into the foundations of like this like quantum matter uh, quantum light matter quantum uh, quantum matter quantum ma quantum light matter interactions um, their ability their, their, their possible crossovers with um, biology it is I think there's fascinating possibilities for the future it's just we we are we're only really beginning really this this century um, to understand and utilize not just the Sort of the sheer power of lasers, but also the oscillations and the phase of the electric fields. And we're really big. So, the 20th century saw the development of the framework of quantum mechanics, and the 20th century was really driven by the the 19th century, where where the development of the framework of electrodynamics was first put together, and the 20th century was developing quantum mechanics, but also now applying electrodynamics. Now we're at a point where we've got a lot of the electrodynamics understood, but what we really need to understand is, like, to implement is the quantum mechanics. And that's actually one of the things that is sort of being pushed forward now with the Quantum Initiative Act, the idea of, like, trying to move to a quantum, what they call quantum 2.0. And so while I'm not currently funded by anything um, in uh, under this, this act, it's very possible that most of the money is going to go to engineering schools, which is maybe right. I still think that we need to make that bridge between the, the quantum and possible ways in which we can solve climate. So, yeah, I think it's very exciting. I think, I think it's very exciting.
As an educator, do you feel that when students come up, do you feel that they've been properly educated on issues like climate change? Do you, or do you feel like you have to do a lot of catching up? Um, I, yeah, the latter. Um, I have to do a lot of catching up. Um, uh, and again, I ha- I'm new to I'm new to educating myself on the climate, so uh, I don't blame them. Uh, it's no one's fault. Um, I mean, there have been people talking about this for a long time, though. Um, but it, it it's it it's no individual's fault. Um, there is, I think, there's there's a systemic problem that we need to overcome, uh, not just in this country, worldwide. Um, humans don't like change, and incremental change is sort of is what we're used to. We, we can cope with that. Like in physics, in thermodynamics, we call it adiabatic, right? So it's like very slow changes. Uh, so those slow changes, yeah, we don't notice they're happening, and then I mean, you look at some of the policies that happen. Like, let's. Take government policy right now. I mean, it's it's drastically different from even five years ago. But it happened, it kind of mostly happened bit by bit. Most people don't even notice. So I don't blame any individual. I blame, I blame the system a little bit. I blame humans collectively. Again, it's like the quantum, quantum coherence. The sum is greater than the parts. And so, yeah, collectively we need, we need to solve this. But the, the collection needs the individuals to, to work on it. Yeah. And um, in the physics department, we've been we've been actually meeting for the past semester once a month or so to say to think about how we can integrate this in our classes better because like traditionally we don't have climate education in our physics classes more than an, like an afterthought or maybe a project here or there. But and one of the things Alan came up with, Dr. Bristow came up with, was to when we give public lectures or even when we give any lecture, to um, have a slide in the PowerPoint or just this is what's going on, you know, just keeping it up in the conversation, saying, you know, as a scientist, I need to say this, I need to say climate change is happening, and it's human caused, and we need to act now. And, you know, you even came up with a hashtag for it, like hashtag just one slide. <laughs> I think you're giving me credit for someone else's, uh, someone else's idea. Like, oh, okay. I, I thought I thought it was actually your idea for the slide, and I thought it was Sean McWilliams's idea for um, uh, the hashtag. But we all talked about it. We all talked about it, and I'm all on board. In fact, actually, when I was in North Carolina about a month, a month and a half ago, I did this for the first time, and I actually had... In my, a public lecture. In a, in a, it was a colloquium in the department, in the physics department. So I, I gave them the, the slide that, that I would want to give in a public lecture, which is like, as a scientist, I want you to know, and I crossed out the, as a scientist, I want you to know, crossed out the you, and I, I added something like, as a scientist, we are all scientists, I want you to recognize that this is the time when you should give a slide. And I did use the hashtag, just one slide. I, <laughs> I like that, I like the hashtag, and I think that we should. I don't know how to like make a hashtag go viral. I mean, is, there must be a way, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> maybe the younger people in the audience can uh, can help us with that. But it is something we're thinking about, is how to integrate it into our classes and public talks and colloquia that we give, because we... You know, we have a voice. Yeah, it's essential. I think it's a fantastic point because, I mean, as scientists, I feel like generally as a professor and a scientist, I get a little bit of respect. Not from everyone. I'm certainly I'm having plenty of arguments with my uh, my family on uh, things like climate change, where they because it's my family. You know, they say, "Oh, yeah, but you're just our son. Um, uh, why do we have to believe you?" It's like, "Oh, because I'm a scientist and I've been studying this." So, um, but the UK right now has problems with experts anyway. So, uh, um, but that's a whole different thing. But the, but we do have a voice, and we can we can uh, um, we can try and use that voice at least a little bit to engage and just keep on talking about it because talking about it is uh, one of the main main things that, that we need to do. We got super sciencey. We did get super sciencey in the middle there, yeah, yeah. 
Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I didn't say everything I wanted to say about Thorium, but um, uh, I, I, I came across this a while back, and um, um, it was actually just a random YouTube video. I, this is the other, so in general, in terms of climate change, what I do on a re- fairly regular basis, watch endless YouTube videos. I mean, I just it's always on the background. There's always stuff coming out. There's, there's great material out there. And I came across a random one from some activist who really wants to see Thorium. And um, uh, it was a really well-produced video. And I watched it thoroughly. And then I read a couple of things. It's like, yeah, actually, this technology is kind of cool. Um, and the, the, then shortly after watching that video, the, um, there was one of the presidential debates. It's actually the climate change debate that happened. Democrats on CNN and Andrew Yang actually said the word thorium and actually said that we need to think about this he's one of the very few politicians out there or potential politicians out there right now who is actually trying to really incorporate science and actually has a slight handle on it majority of majority of science majority of um, uh, um, politicians do not have any science background and in terms of sort of like in terms of the general discussion that we've had um, one of the systemic problems is that we do not have enough scientists running for office. That is a huge problem. And if we could do anything to change the world, I would say that through exercises like this podcast, we would want to try and encourage people who, who they, they, they did a degree in physics, say, or in biology, or, or whatever, they, whatever they chose to do their degree in. But like, then they have some, some, they, some nagging urge to to solve some pro- some public ill, um, uh, then I think we should be strongly encouraging people who, to to run for run for office at all levels. I mean, any anyone who has any science background should should be thinking about that. And um, uh, while I already have a day job, um, uh, and it takes a lot of a lot of days. Um, uh, I, I one of the nice things about my my small platform as a scientist and as an educator is that by I, I'm going to stop pushing students to think about um, about this as opposed to just the usual thing that happens with in physics departments where a student comes in and then they're not sure what they want to do afterwards and they just want to go to grad school and they oh, I just want to become a professor like you. It's like I haven't actually had anyone specifically look up to me and <laughs> want to be a professor like me and I don't blame them. Um, but uh, um, I, I think it's a, it's a really viable path. I mean, actually, uh, one of the previous senators from this state um, had a small amount of science training and spent many years on the, um, uh, the science and technology committee in the Senate. So there, are, there, are, there are ways that you can get involved in policy, and we've had, a, we've had a few people get involved in the AAAS, so that's the American Association for the Advancement of Science. They, they have, so they're, they're, they're the publishers of like, the magazine Science, um, and they also have a program that like, works with Congress to try and get people policy experience with one they've got a degree in, uh, in, in STEM. Um, so, uh, um, and as I, STEM educators, I mean, we can do a lot more to just tell students that that exists. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's uh, um, because I, climate is part of everything. I mean, we, we all live in the climate um, and uh, we all have the ability to change it. And we have so many ways in which we can be involved in changing it. So, I mean, back, sort of back to your earlier question about what I do, um, I'm I'm, I'm also hoping to be an optimist in the sense that, okay, maybe I don't 
maybe I take too many bits of plastic and I produce too much waste and I fly too much, but maybe if I can educate enough people to help undo my mistakes, <laughs> um, then then maybe there can be a balance in the long run. Um, so, yeah, we can, we can try. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for your time today, Dr. Bristol. It was nice talking to you. Yeah, thank you very much, Jack. It was great. <laughs>